Ezra chapter 5, if you want to turn there in your Bibles this evening. And as you're turning there, if you want to maybe, and you may need to reference your table of contents, and that's fine. That's there for a purpose and a benefit to help. You may want to look at uh, Haggai chapter 1 as well. It's just, Haggai's a short little prophetic book, but want to glance at a passage there as well. Uh, so that's going to be to the right uh, in the uh, prophetic books. Haggai, uh, just two chapters, but I want to reference a passage there as well. So if you want to, as you're kind of getting situated, look for that. Maybe just stick a finger there so you'll be able to find that and be able to look at that passage together as well. As we've been seeing together, the work on the temple of God being rebuilt has been happening now there in Jerusalem under Zerubbabel and the remnant that returned back with him from the Babylonian captivity and We saw, as is often the pattern in spiritual life, that when a work of God begins, uh, that also tends to secondarily awaken a work of opposition uh, from the enemy spiritually in our lives. And as God's people went back to Jerusalem to answer his call to rebuild the temple of Jerusalem there, uh, we saw in chapter 4 that the adversaries arose at that time. And first they tried to seduce them in a form of compromise to join together with them. And when that was declined, uh, they then began a more direct form of opposition. It says the people of the land then tried to discourage them and they tried to trouble them in the building, that they began to frustrate their purpose and do everything they could to hinder and to cause the work of God to cease. And as we came to the end of chapter 4 last time, chapter 4, verse 24, if you look back with me, it sets the context for where we go this evening. It says, Thus the work of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So uh, for a number of years, again, we can't be exact. There are different Uh, ideas from commentators, but at least in the range of not just weeks or months, but for years, uh, the work on God's house kind of came to a screeching halt, and the enemy was able to basically delay God's work and to detour them so that they would no longer continue to do the thing that God had called them to do. It simply says that the work of God ceased, and it was discontinued. And for a number of years, uh, what God was wanting to do and what God began to do had kind of come to a halt, and that work was being frustrated and hindered. Uh, And it's chapter 5 now, as we come to it, that gives us the good news, which is that God reinstitutes something that had gone dormant, something that had become detoured. It tells us in chapter 5 of Ezra, then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Idu, prophets, that they prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shetio, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, remember they were the leaders at this time, it says they rose up, they took the initiative to arouse the people once again, they rose up and began to build, the idea is to rebuild, they re-began, Uh, the work of God, it says, to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. So take note here, if you're trying to, again, put the pieces together chronologically in your Bible, we have the different prophetic books towards the end of the Old Testament, Isaiah and Jeremiah, and again here, take notice, in verse 1 of chapter 5, we have reference to the prophet Haggai, 
and as well the prophet Zechariah. And this tells us specifically that it was during this time frame historically that they were performing their ministries. So again, if you're looking for a little extra insight and homework on your free time or maybe your devotional time this week, uh, you could read the prophet Haggai, read the prophet Zechariah, and you kind of get a picture chronologically uh, during the time in which they were ministering as prophets of God and were giving the messages that God was putting upon their hearts. And interesting to see here that as the work of God had ceased and discontinued, look what God uses to restart a spiritual work in the lives among his people. God uses the word of the Lord. You might say it is the word of God that was the thing that brought a renewal spiritually when God's work had gone dormant. When the work of God had ceased, the way that God revived his work was through the spoken word of God. That's what prophets do. Uh, prophets are those who speak as messengers on God's behalf. It was the office whereby someone would hear the word of the Lord and then they would speak the word of the Lord as God's spokesman. So we might fairly say that God used the gift of prophecy or God used the prophetic word to revive his work among his people. And you know, this seems to be a common pattern all throughout history because God's word, whether it is in a prophetic word or whether it is in the written word of God itself, the prophetic scripture that we have, the Bible tells us that God's word is living and powerful, that God's word is inspired by his spirit. That is the very breath of God, the life of God is within the word of God. And when it's spoken, it has a way of awakening a heart spiritually. It has a way of bringing life and restoring life where it has sort of died off or ceased. And, you know, uh, whether it be in a work of God as far as among his people or whether it be just in our own personal lives, one of the greatest antidotes when God's work has sort of ceased in the life of a person or in the life of God's people is to reintroduce the word of God because God's word is always the characterizing mark so many times of a real revival and a renewal of God's work when it needs to happen. So God here begins the work. He restarts this work that is slowed down by basically sending these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to come and speak messages, to speak his word to the people, to stir up their hearts and to get them once again to rise back up, if you would, out of their sleeping condition, out of their uh, kind of apathy spiritually, and to start once again building, it says, the house of God there in Jerusalem, and it was through these prophets that God was helping the people. So again, beautiful to see as they're serving and doing the work of God, God is using those who are speaking the word of God as helpers alongside of his servants, and God using that prophetic gift to motivate them and to assist them. Now, I told you to mark in your Bibles uh, uh, the book of Haggai, which is just a short little prophetic book. And again, it says there in verse one that one of the prophets God was using at this time was Haggai. And I wanted you to, to reference that because if you look at Haggai chapter one, you sort of get a little bit of an insight of some of what had happened during this time. Uh, again, Haggai positioned in your Bible right between Zephaniah and Zechariah towards the end of your Old Testament. If you're not there yet, you, you find Malachi and Zechariah. If you work your way back to the left, you'll find Haggai, just a little two-chapter prophetic book. And Haggai speaks to the people of God to stir their hearts to get back to building the temple of the Lord. 
And Haggai chapter 1 kind of gives to us an indication of exactly what had happened, which in, in essence really was this, is the people of God went from being deterred and went from being, you might say, delayed uh, by the enemy. So the enemy deterred them. The enemy got them to basically kind of be delayed and distracted But then what happened was it then became their own personal distraction in their carnal appetites and their apathy that kept them in a condition that the enemy kind of moved them in that direction. So uh, was a part of the work of God's house ceasing a work of spiritual opposition? Yes, that's how it began. The enemy got them to be delayed. The enemy got them to be deterred. But then the error on God's people's part is that they then became distracted by their own selfish interests. And they didn't return for a long period of time, mainly not because of the spiritual opposition, but predominantly because of their own selfish, carnal lifestyles. And this is what Haggai comes along the line and stirs up. Look at Haggai chapter 1, verse 2, down through the chapter. You can see what Haggai spoke to the people to stir them back up. It says, Haggai chapter one, verse two, thus speaks the Lord of hosts saying, this people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. So this is what the people were saying at that time. They had not returned to building God's house or doing God's work of ministry. And notice they were actually spiritualizing their excuse for why they weren't doing. They were saying, look, it's just not God's timing right now. It's just not God's time. Well, I mean, eventually we're going to do it, but right now it's just not God's time. And it's amazing how, as God's people, we can even make excuses that are very spiritual sounding. Uh, and, and we can make excuses for why we don't do certain things and almost put a spiritual twist on it. Well, I, I'm still praying about that. You know, and, and certainly we want to pray, but sometimes that can become an excuse that we kind of spiritualize for why we're not doing something right. Well, I'm just still praying about it. And uh, maybe we've already prayed about it. We know what God's told us. And now saying that we're praying about it is a kind of way of just delayed obedience. And that's not good. And here they were basically saying, well, it, it's just not time to build the Lord's house right now. And at some point we'll get to doing that. Well, verse three, then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet. And this is what Haggai said in relation to that, in a sense, excuse they were making. He says, verse four, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? In other words, he was saying, boy, it's awfully interesting that you don't have time to work on God's house. But you seem to have all types of time to make upgrades on your own personal residence. It's amazing how you don't have time to make investments financially into the work of God, but you have no problem going to Home Depot and buying the best quality paneling and refinishing your own houses. And basically, Haggai is calling them on the carpet for just misdirected desires, uh, that their interests were more in their own personal situation and their personal lives than it really was in the things of God and God's work. And he says, well, it's amazing how there's time for you to live in paneled houses, but the temple of God and God's work is lying in ruins. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, he says, verse five, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns them to put them in a bag with holes. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So God exhorts them through Haggai. He says, look, maybe you need to consider your own ways and maybe recognize that it's your ways that are getting in the way of God's ways. And sometimes that's a word of reproof that we need to hear. Sometimes the thing that's getting in God's way is our way and that we're pursuing our way. And that's what's hindering us from really experiencing God's way in the situation. And he says, boy, it's amazing. You're working hard. You're earning money. But he says, it's amazing. You're earning wages just to put them in a bag with holes. The idea is that you're acquiring, 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 but you just never have enough. And you're still never satisfied and you just keep wanting more for yourself and you're kind of in that pursuit. And he says, consider your ways. Think about what's going on in your life. He says, verse eight, go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? In other words, why aren't you making progress in life? Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house, therefore the heavens above withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock and all the labor of your hands. So God basically says, in essence, look, because you had misdirected priorities, I intervened to get your attention. And God says, I purposely made it become difficult because I wanted to get your attention. And because your priorities were off, I wouldn't allow your priorities to prosper. And though they were doing everything they could to attend to themselves, God says, the problem is you are too self-focused and you've lost eternal focus. You've lost spiritual focus. And so God was rebuking them for their selfishness and their greediness and their really just a worldly mindset that was causing them to neglect the things of God while they pursued everything of their own personal pleasures and materialism. And verse 12 says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shittil, and Joshua, the high priest, it says, With all the remnant of the people of God, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. And Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, and it says, and notice, and all spirit of all the remnant of the people, verse 14, and they came and they worked on the house of the Lord, it says, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. So again, God uses this prophetic messenger to come and speak God's word to the people, to challenge them for their error and their sin, to offer a word of correction, to tell them what they needed to do to get back to the proper focus on the things of God. And the word of the Lord stirred the people's hearts and they returned back to doing the thing that they ought to be doing, which was rebuilding the house of God. So come back with me to Ezra. You kind of get a picture there, a little bit of what God did as he sent these prophets to them which thankfully caused that work of God, which had ceased and discontinued to now restart once again. And they start the building process. And these prophets were helping them by speaking the word of God. And there's no greater thing that we can do many times to just help somebody get on track than to just speak the word of God to them, 
to just tell them what the heart of God is and what the word of the Lord is. It's one of the greatest helps we can provide to anyone, whatever it is in their life that they need to make forward progress with. So verse three tells us as they now start up the building again at that same time, Tatanai, the governor of the region beyond the river and Shethzar Bosnai and their companions came to the people of God and spoke thus to them, who has commanded you to build this temple and to finish this wall. So uh, it seems Tatanai was sort of, again, the, the, the governing representative of that region beyond the Euphrates River. So it was his responsibility on behalf of the uh, king of Persia at this time to keep track of what was going on in that region and to report back. So again, he, just in good stewardship here as a governor of the area, he goes to the people of God. He sees this construction process being, uh, in a sense, uh, given attention to again, and they're building, and the construction site is reopened. And he says, wait a minute, um, I don't understand. Who's commanded you to build this temple, and who's told you that you could finish this you know, unconstructed project here? And so he begins to question, in a sense, who is the authority behind what you're doing? Who's called you to do this? Who's given you permission to do this? And challenges them on that subject. And you know, sometimes that's not a bad question to answer, you know, in the sense of being able to properly understand why are we doing what we're doing? Are we doing it just because we think it's a great idea or are they building the temple because they just think it would be exciting to do something for God? Or are they genuinely doing it because God has clearly told them to do it? You know, sometimes I think that's a thing that we need at times settle in our hearts, even as God's people. There's a difference between doing something because it's a good idea or doing something because it's even a godly idea and doing something because it is truly God's idea. And there have been a few times in my life, again, in good intention, where I've endeavored to do something for the Lord because it was a good idea or a godly idea. And then sometimes you find out that God's saying, well, that really wasn't God's idea. It wasn't my idea. Uh, and I think that we need to be able to distinguish between when that's the case and when we genuinely can be certain and sure that the Lord has told me to do this. And this is genuinely God's idea. And that's something that should be reconciled. And the people of God here were being asked that. Who told you to do this? Why are you really doing this? And I think sometimes we need to sort that out. You know, sometimes that's something that the enemy may use to confuse us, but sometimes that's something as well. That's a legitimate question. And we want to be able to answer that. And so they say, why are you doing this? Who's commanded you to build this temple? And then it says, accordingly, verse four, we told them the, the names of the men who were constructing this building. So they were respectful. These were government officials and came on the construction site and who gave you authority to do this and who are the individuals that are involved? So they, they answered respectfully. Look, these are the men who were constructing, verse 5, but the eye of their God, it says, was upon the elders of the Jews so that they could not make them cease till a report could go to Darius. Then a written answer was returned concerning the matter. So thankfully, again, take notice, God here intervenes on their behalf and it says the eye of their God was upon them. The idea is God was watching over his people. And because God was watching over their work, it says, even though they were being questioned by these officials, uh, it did not cause the work of God to cease until a report could go to Darius, the, the ruler at this time of the per Medo-Persian Empire, 
and then an answer was returned back. So now that would be a process, and we're going to see. I mean, this wasn't as if you could just in this day just send a quick email and have an email back in an hour to find out about the situation. This was something where you had to write a letter, and then a courier had to take it a long journey to the capital city, and then they're going to have to search the archives. So in the meantime, God allows his work to carry on. And God doesn't let this interfere with his work. God's, this is I is upon his people so they could not make them cease. The idea is that God was watching over his work so that it wasn't hindered. And what a wonderful thing. When God's genuinely the one doing something, God will watch over his work. And God will make sure that his work is not stopped if it's something that he wants to continue to carry on. So at this point now, they are going to send a letter, it says, to Darius, to the ruling emperor at this time and wait now for a answer back concerning what they should do in this matter so the rest of chapter five gives to us now this correspondence as the governor of the euphrates river area sends now a letter report back to in essence his higher authority to darius the the one who's ruling as the emperor at this time and says look this is what's going on Uh, What do we do in this situation? Uh, You're the king. What's your determination? So verse 6 tells us this is a copy of the letter that Tatani sent. Now, I have that circled, verse 6. This is a copy of the letter. What that's indicating, the Holy Spirit tells us, they actually had a copy, literally a copy, of a letter that was sent, which indicates they kept good records. Because as Tatani sent this letter, he also kept a copy of it, And apparently that copy, the Holy Spirit says, was what was then used to ultimately become that which gets recorded in the word of God because they were keeping good documents and good records. You know, there's something to be said for making copies of things sometimes and keeping good records and having copies of things that, again, for official business and purposes, there's great value to that. We have this record in the word of God because somebody kept a copy of something. And again, it was a handwritten copy. They weren't using the copy machine. It was a handwritten copy. Hey, write a second copy of that so nobody can then switch the wording around and then there's confusion. So somebody hand wrote, probably again with an old style pen and on a scroll and a quill and ink, they wrote a copy to make sure nobody switched the words around, that they were protecting their interests. So this is a copy now of the official letter that actually was sent out by Tatnai, and this is what it said. Verse 6, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Bosnai and his companions, the Persians, who were in the region beyond the river, to Darius the king. They sent a letter to him in which was written thus, to Darius the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that we went to the province of Judea, to the temple of the great God, which is being built with heavy stones and timbers being laid in the walls. And this work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. So they begin to report what they observed. We went to this area of Judea. We noticed this temple to this supposedly great God of the people of Israel is being built and it seems they making reference predominantly to verse 8 that they were using these heavy stones. Interesting they mention that. And probably what they were concerned about and they're trying to sort out is as they're watching this great temple be built or rebuilt, if you would, Solomon's temple that was destroyed. They're seeing these large stones and they're perhaps starting to wonder, wait a minute, that looks more like a fortress than a temple. 
So what's going on here? Are they planning a revolt or something? They're seeming to use these big, heavy stones, and, and it's diligently going on, and they're really prospering and making some headway. So verse 9, they indicate what they did, as we read about. So we asked, they say, the elders and spoke to them, saying, Who commanded you to build this temple and to finish these walls? And we also asked them their names, so that we might inform you and that we might write the names of the men who were chief among them, those who were leading the project. And here's what they answered, verse 11. And thus they returned to us an answer, saying, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel, of course referring to Solomon, built and completed. So look how they answer, very interesting insight, as they say, Hey, this is who are the ones responsible. They said, what are the men's names? Look how they choose to identify themselves. Verse 11, they say, this is who we are. We are servants of God. That's their preferred identity. Just tell them we are servants of God. It wasn't about name recognition. Or just We're just servants of God. We are just people who are serving God's purposes, the God of heaven and earth. We are just his servants doing his work, and we are rebuilding something that God once restored that has fallen apart and been, in a sense, ruined at a prior time, rebuilding the temple of Solomon, the great king. Verse 12, but they go on to speak about what they were doing. Because of our fathers who provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon the Chaldean who destroyed this temple and carried the people away to Babylon. However, verse 13, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to build this house of God and also the gold and the silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple that was in Jerusalem. And he carried into the temple of Babylon those King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon and they were given to the one named Shezbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said, take these articles, go and carry them to the temple site that is in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt on its former site. And then that same Shesbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. But from that time, even until now, it has been under construction and it is not yet finished. So, from verse 12, again, down through verse 16, it's a record there of how God's people answered this governor who came to them and questioned what they're doing. He's just recording what their response was as he writes the letter to Darius, the emperor. And he says, look, this is what they told us happened. And notice he recounts what the people explained. And, and you notice in verse 12, God's people, their, their humility. The first thing that they admit in verse 12 is the reason we are rebuilding this temple, though it once existed, is because of the fact of our own sin and failures. And they reference that in verse 12. They say, we are rebuilding this temple because our fathers, our people, provoked the God of heaven, provoked his wrath, and therefore he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And we read about how Nebuchadnezzar came and conquered the people of God because of their sin and rebellion against the Lord. And they say, that's the whole reason why we have to rebuild this because of our failures. And I appreciate here kind of the humility in the hearts of God's people. You notice that they're not cleaning up the story. 
They're saying the reason why we're doing rebuilding and we're doing restoration is because of our own personal failures in our past. And we openly admit that. And there's just humility there. There's confession. There's ownership. They just honestly, humbly accept, look, the reason why we are rebuilding is because we ruin things. And we take full ownership of that. And I appreciate their hearts here, you know, because a lot of times that's a major hindrance in a rebuilding process is that people don't want to take full ownership of ruining something they ruined in their past. And one of the first steps towards healthy rebuilding and restoration is you got to just stop making excuses if you ruin something in the past. No justifications, no excuses. Look, the reason things fell apart was because I ruined them. Bottom line. And when you can get to a place like that where you're able to just take full ownership, then God can begin a real restoration process and he can build a rebuilding process. Because as soon as they talk about what they ruined, the very next thing they describe in verses 13 and 14 is then how God was gracious to them. How after 70 years of consequences, when the consequences served their purpose, that God stirred the heart of Cyrus, remember, and sent them back to rebuild their their temple there. And he financed the project and how God was gracious to them because, you know, that's ultimately what God's heart is. Once consequences run their course, God's heart is always to restore. No matter how bad we ruin things, God wants to be gracious to us. And he doesn't want to rub our face in the ruin forever. He wants us to just learn from it absorb our consequence, take our spanking, if you would, grow and learn from it, and then let God graciously begin to restore and rebuild in our lives. And they reference how this is what they were doing and why they were doing it. And they say, so therefore he sent us back. Cyrus issued the decree. He gave us governmental permission, and he even financed the project and sent us back saying, take the articles and go and rebuild the temple, verse 15, on its former site. And they say, that's what we've been doing. We're doing what Cyrus gave us a decree that we could do in the past history when he was the ruler there in the Medo-Persian Empire. So verse 17, the conclusion of the letter that Tatani wrote says, Now, therefore, if it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, whether it is so that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to build this house of God at Jerusalem and let the king send us his pleasure concerning this matter. So the end of the letter culminates with, look, this is what we were told by them. Can you search in your archives and see if this is historically accurate? And in some ways, you got to commend Tatnai because he's not trying to rewrite history. He just says, what's the truth about history? (laughs) Did this really happen in the past? Search the historical documents, look in the archives there in the Medo-Persian Empire where the capital city and the rulership takes place and where all the records are. And they say, see whether or not this is true. Was there a decree in the past that was issued by King Cyrus to build this house? And if there was, then King, tell us at your pleasure, what do you want us to do? Which brings us to chapter six, where King Darius says, issued a decree And a search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. And at Akmatha, which is interestingly 300 miles away. So this was quite an extensive search because that's where they find the record. At Akmatha, 300 miles away in the palace that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found and a record was written thus. So 
they begin to search the archives. Now, again, keep in mind, this is before, again, computers and Internet. This was before the days where, like, you know, nowadays you can Google something and in three seconds you get the answer to something, right? Boom. Just type it in and, and up it comes in multiple web. This was a manual search going through scrolls and old documents. I mean, you're talking about going back years and years ago of records and decrees. So this was a real effort, this process, as they make a search, and ultimately they find this search after diligently looking, giving due diligence, due process to the matter. I mean, they, they, they conducted things in a proper way. Look, let's find out if this is really true. And I like this whole process here because, in a sense, what you have in the whole situation is you have a situation where God's people are being questioned about something they're doing. They're saying, look, what we're doing is not breaking the law. Check the law. Check the books. Go check the archives. See if what we are doing is a violation of law or what we're doing is in alignment with what the law permits us to do. And they search the law books. They search the archives. And they find out that there was indeed a record and that's what was used to substantiate God's people having the freedom to continue to keep doing what they're doing. Look, they find the record, verses 3 to 5, tell us what they found in the archive and the record that was written. The record said, verse 3, in the first year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt the place where they offered sacrifices and let the foundations of it be firmly laid, its height 60 cubits and its width 60 cubits with three rows of heavy stones. Again, notice it was even said they could use big, heavy stones. That was part of the concern. One row of new timber and let the expenses, verse four, be paid from the king's treasury. So let them rebuild and let the government help finance the project of building God's house was decreed. And let the gold and the silver and the articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought them to Babylon, be restored and taken back to the temple, which is in Jerusalem, each to its place and deposit them in the house of God. So clearly the archive is found, the law that was decreed, that's what it was, as the, as the emperor issued it, it was a decreed law gave them permission. They were commanded to go back and to do this. So there you go. Evidence was found. These people were not doing something that was incorrect or a violation of the law. They were doing what they were decreed to be done. And even that the government was to finance the project itself. So as this archive is now found, as the letter is now written back to Tatnai, there now becomes a reason to answer his situation. What do you want us to do, king? Well, that's what verse 6 picks up with. Now, therefore, in light of that, here's the answer now of Darius. Now, therefore, Tatnai, governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethbar Bosnai and your companions, Persians who are beyond the river, keep yourselves, here's his decree now, keep yourselves far from there. Stay away from God's people. And let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God on its site. In other words, what they are doing is in compliance with the decree of King Cyrus with a law that was written many years ago. They are not violating the law. Get off their backs. Leave them alone. Let them do what they're doing, they say. Let them alone. 
Moreover, verse 8, he says, I now, present tense, as the king, King Darius, I issue a decree as to what you shall do for the elders of these Jews, for the building of this house of God. Let the cost be paid at the king's expense. So let the government help finance the project. Imagine that. From the taxes on the region beyond the river, this is to be given immediately to these men so that they are not hindered. And whatever they need, young bulls and rams, lambs for burnt offerings for the God of heaven, wheat and salt and wine and oil, according to the request of the priests who are in Jerusalem, let it be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. So he says, look, leave them alone. And not only do I want you to leave them alone and let them work and don't hinder them, he says, from the taxes that are collected in that region there, I want you to help finance this project that God's people are doing. And he says, I want to make sure that they are not hindered by a lack of resources, he says, so that they may not be hindered whatever they need, whether it's animals or salt or wheat or, or wine or oil, whatever they request, give it to them. Boy, can you imagine that? Whatever they need, give it to them. You know, the Bible tells us that God can turn the hearts of kings like a river of water in whatever direction he wants. And here again, God stirs the heart of a, of a pagan king, King Darius, to not only, again, stand with God's people and support them, but even does things to give them financial incentive and help them to be able to do the very things that God wants them to do. Amazing how God can use all people as his instruments. And again, what a clear indication that when God has something that he wants to do, God always finances his projects. I mean, you want to talk about God financing his projects? God's financing his project through the government. You know that's God. God's financing his project through tax money. He's not saying, well, let's just let them be tax exempt. God's saying, take the taxes and pay them. Use the tax money to pay God's people to do God's work. I mean, you want to talk about something substantial. God has no problem substantiating his work financially. You know, God help us if we think that for some reason we should keep plowing forward and trying to do something for God if we genuinely don't have the resources to do it. When God does something, God provides for his work. Where God guides, God provides. Even if it takes a pagan official saying use tax money to pay for God's projects. God always provides. When God's doing something, he will make sure he finances fully and clearly what he wants to do. You know, I mean, I think about the, the you know, process at times when the Lord's led us to do different things. I think of when we were, uh, you know, taking a venture of faith to you know, come down here and start a Bible study, an outreach Bible study we began when we were still pastoring the church there in York. And and all we did was make a decision to start an outreach Bible study. And we started at the Atlantic Christian School uh, down here. It's when I was driving back and forth still. And before we even started the Bible study, people were mailing checks to Calvary Chapel of York, to Calvary Chapel of Philadelphia, saying, hey, we heard something may be happening. We would like to participate in that. And we hadn't even started yet. And then through the whole process, not one time we ever mention anything, say anything. People were, were, by the grace of God, God was moving on their hearts saying, hey, we want to participate in that. 
We want to help finance that. You're going to rent. And, and it was just uh, something beautiful that the Lord did. We didn't have to make mention of it. We didn't have to put a basket out. We, just the Lord began moving on people's hearts. And where God guides, God provides. And the Lord is so faithful to do that. Listen, if the Lord's telling you to do something, he'll take care of it. You step out in faith, you walk forward, and God will do however he needs to what needs to be done to make sure that you're taken care of. Never worry. If God's leading you to do something, genuinely directing you to do something, he will always find a way to provide for you, provide for your family, to provide for his work, and to make it come to pass. And here, just an amazing thing to think about what's actually happening the, the king is now saying, look, I want you to take the tax money. I don't want them to be hindered. This is something that you know, God was wanting done, so God moves on this king's heart. and He says, whatever they need, you make sure you give it to them day by day so that they can complete this project. And he says, and, and if they do, verse 10, he says, that's going to allow them to offer sacrifices, and then they're going to pray for me as the king. I mean, what a smart king in some ways. He says, look, God's people doing God's work is good for the government. Because he says, then they'll pray for me and my sons as the king. Again, might have been a little bit of a selfish uh, agenda there. But nonetheless, I, I appreciate the wisdom of Darius. He said, look, when God's people are doing God's things, it's going to make it better in the, in the, the society. Because they're going to be praying and they'll pray for me as the king and favor will be upon me and my government. So he says, verse 11, I issue a decree that whoever alters this edict, let a timber be pulled from his house and erected and let him be hanged on it. And let his house be made a refuse heap because of this. And may the God who causes his name to dwell there or any king or people who put their hand to alter it or to destroy this house of God, which is in Jerusalem, I, Darius, issue a decree, let it be done diligently. So talk about, <laughs> we talk about turning the tables. Boy, does God have a way of turning the tables from from everything being against them and the work of God being discontinued and the work of God ceasing to God taking that situation and turning it all the way back around. And now God is working in a way whereby there is favor upon them and blessing. And again, God is an amazing way, does he not, folks, of turning the tables in a given situation where everything can be against you and you can be getting done wrong and there's opposition and there's resistance and God is a way he just puts his hand in there and he can just spin things around and all of a sudden he takes a curse and he turns it into a blessing for you. And he has a way of taking what the enemy intends for evil and making it work out for your good. I mean, God here just spins this whole thing around. You know, maybe you're dealing with something right now. Be encouraged. God is a way of turning the tables. He can do it in time. You just keep being faithful to what you know God has told you to do. You do what's right, and you pray, and you seek the Lord, and let God work on your behalf. And God is a way of turning the tables around in time, and this is a beautiful example of how he does it. The king threatens, hey, who any tries to get in the way, he says, they're going to answer to me and suffer if they try and do anything to stop what's being done there. He says, let it be done and done diligently. So verse 13 says, Tatnai, the governor of the region, Beyond the river and Shethbosnai and the companions diligently did according to what King Darius had sent. So they obeyed the word and carried it out. So the elders of the Jews built, it says, and they prospered through the prophesying. Again, notice of Haggai, the prophet and Zechariah, the son of Idu, and they built and they finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel, according to the command of Cyrus 
and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So God gave him favor through multiple reigns of three different kings that reigned during that time over Persia. And again, verse 14, we have the reference there of these two prophets prophesying, helping them. And it says they built and they prospered through the prophesying of these men who were speaking God's word to them. And that's what helped them to keep building and ultimately to finish the thing that God had called them to do. Let me read to you just from Zechariah chapter 4. One of the things that Zechariah prophesied to encourage them in the midst of this time. Zerubbabel, no doubt, was dealing with discouragement, and we've seen the challenges they went through. Listen to what Zechariah said as a way to encourage Zerubbabel in the spiritual work when he was discouraged. Zechariah said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, you're not going to do this through your own human effort, but it needs to be a work of my spirit, says the Lord. Who are you, O great mountain? That is you great obstacle before Zerubbabel. You shall become a plain. God would flatten the mountainous obstacle. And he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. In other words, it would be all of God's grace. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. So again, the idea, God sees things different than they were seeing things. From their perspective, it was despised. It was a day of small things. It looked like it was impossible. There were mountainous obstacles. And God spoke and he said, listen, don't let those things discourage you. It's not by might or by power, humanly. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. And he says, that mountainous obstacle, I can flatten that and make it like a plane. And by grace and grace alone, he says, don't, don't allow little things to stand in your way or think that those things are going to somehow never amount to anything. He says, by my grace, I can bring to pass what I want. He says, Zerubbabel started this and Zerubbabel will finish it. And God was going to carry out his work. It would be his faithfulness that would bring it to pass. So again, thank goodness these wonderful men of God were speaking the word of the Lord inspiring the people and motivating the people. And you know, it's a wonderful thing when God gives a prophetic word at times to those like a Haggai, to those like a Zechariah who can come alongside when someone's discouraged, when someone's ready to give up or someone's you know ready to kind of set something aside and they can come along and they can bring a word of encouragement to inspire us to keep going to motivate us to keep doing the right thing. You know, we need the New Testament exercise of the gift of prophecy just as much today to speak comfort and encouragement, to edify and to exhort people so that they stay in God's will and keep moving in the direction that God wants for them. So verse 15 here of Ezra chapter 6 says, Now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was in the sixth year, of the reign of King Darius. So notice started the second, ended on the sixth year, took four more years once they started rebuilding. They conclude the temple, that is in 515 BC. And then the children of Israel, the priests and Levites and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. 
They offered sacrifices at the dedication of the house of God, 100 bulls and 200 rams, 400 lambs as a sin offering for all the 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. Take notice of that, verse 17. As they're, again, offering these sacrifices, celebrating the dedication of the temple being now built, 12 male goats, according to the number of of the tribes of Israel, that is the 12 tribes of Israel. When they came back from the captivity, they hadn't lost track of the 12 tribes of Israel. They still knew their identity. They still knew who the 12 tribes of Israel. There are people with replacement theology and different ideas and say, well, you know, we don't know what happened to the 12 tribes of Israel. God knows who his people are. (laughs) And when they came back, they offered 12 goats as a representative of the 12 tribes of Israel as they were celebrating And they assigned once again, verse 18, the priests to their divisions and the Levites to their divisions over the service of the house of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. So they're again reassigning people to their ministry positions. They're reestablishing the temple worship system according to the word of God and the descendants of the captivity. Verse 19, they again kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves. All of them were ritually clean, and they slaughtered the Passover lambs for all the descendants of the captivity and their brethren, the priests, and for themselves. And then the children of Israel, it says, who had returned from the captivity, ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations, that is the immoral practices of the nations around them in the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. So as they're celebrating and re-engaging in worship, notice verse 21 tells us two things happened, it says. As the people were doing this, it says they separated themselves from the filth of the nations in order to seek the Lord. They recognize in order to properly seek the Lord, we have to separate ourselves from the sinful and worldly practices of the nations around us. That we can't live like the rest of the world and genuinely seek God. And, you know, as God's people, I think when there is a work of the Lord beginning to happen and God's spirit is beginning to move, that's a recognition that needs to begin to take place in the lives of God's people for God's work and God's spirit to really begin to happen. When God's people recognize perhaps we have become a little too integrated with the filthy abominations of the practices of this world. The Bible says we are to be in the world, but not of the world. You know, one of the greatest hindering forces among God's people is when God's people just become carnal, like the Corinthian church. They were a church, but they were very carnal. And they were engaged in a lot of worldly practices. There was sexual sin among them. There was selfish behavior. They were suing one another in the church. You know, they were getting drunk among God's people. And there were these behaviors and practices that, yes, they happened out in the world. Because that's how people in the world conduct themselves. We once did that when we were living among the world. But there comes a time where God's people say, you know what? We need to separate ourselves from these filthy, sinful practices, drunkenness and sexual sin and selfish, evil behavior and mistreating people. That's how the world lives. 
But if we're going to genuinely seek God, we need to repent of those things. We need to set those things aside so that we might set our hearts towards the Lord and with a clean heart be able to come to God and seek God in the spirit in the way that he wants us to. And here, there was this genuine repentance happening among God's people, separating themselves from the filth of the nations in order to seek the Lord. And you know what? Sometimes that needs to happen. There may be something in your life this evening, even maybe there's some habit, some practice that you need to separate yourself from. And maybe it's hindering you from seeking the Lord the way that you should. And maybe the first thing that needs to happen is you need to separate yourself from that in order with a pure heart to be able to seek the Lord fully and engage in worshiping and following him the way God wants you to. And that's something that God's people, even at times, need to be willing to, in a sense, search their hearts and be open to. In verse 22, the chapter concludes here saying, and they kept also the feast of unleavened bread, as that would happen the week after the Passover celebration. For seven days, notice with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and he turned the heart of the king of assyria now that's just a generic reference to darius at this time because remember he had conquered the babylonians who had absorbed the assyrians it says the lord had turned the heart of the king of assyria the ruler to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of the god of israel so this incredible joy floods the hearts of god's people because they know they're in right relationship with god and, you know, when God's people come into a place of right relationship with him, that is the byproduct. There's a tremendous joy that comes in, in the hearts of God's people. There's something very joyous about knowing that you're right with God and that you set aside things that displease the Lord and that you are seeking after that which God wants and engaging in worship. And as God's people are beginning now to worship and celebrate it says the Lord made them joyful. Notice it was a supernatural joy. As they just began to worship, God filled their hearts with a tremendous joy. And you know what, folks? There is something really rewarding about just engaging in worship and just coming before the Lord and beginning to worship him where you don't have to generate happiness. The Lord can put joy in your heart. And you experience the joy of the Lord. You know, I hope you know that. I mean, you can drag yourself right into the house of God and be all beat up and tired and worn out and frustrated. And then you just start worshiping the Lord and the Lord makes you joyful supernaturally. And he sends you out with a completely dispos different disposition by the joy he puts into your hearts. Well, let's stand and let's